can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is a historian and critic, uh, cultural and political critic. He's an author, essayist, and columnist, and he is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Today we have a special show where we've got Roger Kimball has joined us. He is the editor and publisher at Encounter Books and the editor of The New Criterion, which is one of my favorites. I highly recommend it as a magazine. Lots of, I especially appreciate the the book um, book reviews that come at, out of the new criterion. And I never buy books, but I have bought a few and the reviews have been spot on. So anybody that's interested in culture, the new criterion is an excellent place to find um, information on all sorts of topics from politics to art. Um, so we have a special show ahead of us. So hang with us and we'll be right back after these messages. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back. I would like to also say about Roger that he has seven books and a baker's dozen of edited and co-edited books. So lots to go to, but I would especially like to recommend for our listeners 
the tenured radicals, how politics has corrupted our higher education, which has been through three editions since 1990. And I'm not sure that we shouldn't tell or consider Roger a Nostradamus of sorts. And the second one that's really revealing about political correctness is the rape of the masters, how political correctness sabotaged the arts. So those are especially probably of interest to our podcast listeners. So welcome, Roger. Thank you. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and hand this over to Victor. Roger, good to hear you. Hey, uh, I thought maybe our listeners um, would like a little background. So you grew, you grew up in Maine, but you went to Bennington. As I did. I did. What was what was I that did. like in the nineteen seventies? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I went to a Jesuit high school in in South Portland, Maine. I, I I was actually born in Shaker Heights, which is just outside of Cleveland. But I was moved at a tender age to to Maine. Uh, and um, so since having been born in Shaker Heights, by the way, since that's, uh, you know, more or less in the center of the country, I always write down Native American on those forms when <laughs> when asked, uh, since I figure you can't get much more Native American than that. And, and being a, a person of a sort of pleasing pinkish hue, I also regard myself as a person of color. But oh, we'll, out, we'll leave that. To, uh, we'll leave that for for an, an, another another day. Uh, uh, yes, I, I grew up in in Maine. Went to this Jesuit high school, and at that time, I thought I wanted to um, thought I wanted to be a poet. So I, I at, uh, in those days, there were very few places that one could go and um, major in poetry. Um, you could. It's a probably an index of the the uh, one index of the decline of of our educational institutions that such places are now rife. But that too is a topic for another day. But I, I, I didn't wind up going to Bennington uh, uh, and, and writing poetry. I majored in, I did a double major in philosophy and classical Greek. Um, but it was your, all- Who was your was, professor you know, there, was like, Roger? Who was your Greek professor? Well, I, I, the, 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 yeah, the Greek professor was a chap called Claude Fredericks. Who um, he he had no degrees he he wow. he he he, um, he he did he did he did not graduate from high school he did go to Harvard back then you could even get into Harvard uh, you know without having a high school degree yeah. but he left Harvard after one year and it was really an autodidact I mean he was um, you know a man of the world he 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 uh, he knew a lot of languages and um, I, my classes in Greek with him were usually with just two or three other people. So it was, wow. it was pretty interesting. So, he was, was, there, was I, I learned as much about, uh, were you the sorry, first class to be integrated? I mean, was it a woman's? No, class? no, no it that, wasn't never. never yeah. Well, it had, it had been, a, it had, yeah, it had been a women's school, had been a women's school back in those, those halcyon days, there was no confusion about which was which. Um, <laughs> but no, I think, I think the first, I think the first, the first class that, that uh, had men was in like 1969 or something. I think oh, I went wow. in 72 or three or something. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So, no, and then you went, still and mostly then you went women, to, but I, I, then, I regarded that as an advantage. And then you went to graduate school at Yale. Right I did. Away? I did. Right yeah. My, my, yeah. Yes, right after, right afterwards. I didn't know what to do, so I just decided to keep going to school. My 
that I had several really good teachers at Yale. Uh, probably the best, uh, the, the two best were, were probably Karsten Harries, who was the chairman of the philosophy department, uh -huh. and a chap called uh, John Harrington, who was actually the chairman of the classics department. He was, he was yeah, wonderful. He was, he was he an was, Escalian scholar. Yeah, I he heard was, him speak he, a lot. He was, yes. Yeah, he was very nice to me. I just presented myself at his door one day and asked him if he would tutor me in medieval Latin, and he said yes. You know, how many teachers would, would say yes to a student from an yeah, entirely different department? No, so we, we met. met yeah. yeah, he was great. He was great. He was, he was famous in classics for being a kind person as well as a great Escalian scholar, as I remember. And um, yes, yes, his book on Escalus so, was great. Yeah. So when you when you get done with your master's, then what do you do? You just you're a public, quote unquote, intellectual and you're in New York area. So did you who did you work for? Well, I, I, I was I was I thought I would you know have an academic career. I, I uh -huh. wrote, you know, probably most of my dissertation and then moved to New York and didn't finish it because I realized that I was not going to uh, have an academic career. So I. I probably should have finished it because it's good to finish what you start, but um, but I, I didn't. And uh, you know, it's 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 strange. I always, I always thought of myself in in some ways. I guess I still do think of myself as a liberal in the sense that Edmund Burke uh, was a liberal. Mm -hmm. I believe in you know colorblind justice, advancement according to merit, you know, disinterested judgment, all of that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but those 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 cardinal liberal virtues have now been enlisted in the index prohibitorum of uh, reactionary vices. So I, I understood even at Yale that um, if, if I were going to have an academic career, um, I would probably wind up in Montana or something. Nothing wrong with Montana, but I didn't I didn't fancy doing that sort of thing. And so I moved to New York. To you could have come to Fresno State. Yes, yes, that would have been What's great. That? But, yeah. but, uh, but I, uh, you know, I moved to New York and was began writing. Uh, I think the first piece I wrote was for a very academic magazine uh, published by the Dominicans called The Thomist. You know, it's uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And then, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I wrote, I I wrote a, a bunch of things for them, but they didn't pay or anything, of course. And uh, so uh, eventually it was borne in upon me that... Um, uh, writing such articles was one thing, but one needed to make a living. So um, I started doing other things as well. How did you get to know Bill Buckley? I can't remember when I first met him, but I believe it was probably after I published my book, Tendered Radicals, uh -huh. because that was a subject that Bill, of course, was interested in. He, he um, uh, many of your listeners will, will know that he wrote a book <clears throat> called God and Man at Yale, which um, the argument of which is not entirely dissimilar from the argument mm. uh, I was putting forward in Tenured Radicals. And um, we became friendly and then it, we lived, you know, I lived pretty close to him and uh, began sailing with him and we became actually very good friends. Um, uh, we're Catholic and we used to go to a Tridentine Rite Latin Mass with Bill and a couple of his friends, my wife and I, and and would often go back to his house for, for, for dinner following. So I got to know him really quite well. Um, uh, but I think it was because of my book, Tendered Radicals, that, that uh, we, we were first introduced. I think I first met you or something. You, I think you blurbed Who Killed Homer in 1998, maybe? 
I can't remember. Are you reviewed it? And I, of course, I can't. I, I, I did blurb it. I did blurb it. Whatever the, yeah. whatever the book was, uh, I think it came out. And it would have been around yeah. that time. Yeah. Yeah. That was how, how, so then what's, what, yeah, well, I that think was, our, that's a great, great book. What I think our listeners need to remember is that, so you have a dual publisher, editor, president, various titles, but the fact is you run encounter books and you run the new criterion journal. But in each of those cases, yes. there's only been two people at, at the top. I mean, there was Peter Collier with Encounter, then you, and then there was Hilton Kramer, and then you, and there's been nobody else since yes. or before. So you inherited kind of a very, uh, uh, very, very great predecessor, didn't you? Both yes, of them were yes. very no, talented. Hilton was, uh, he was incredible. Yeah, both. Yeah, and Peter, too. In fact, we're just about to start. A um, we have a Hilton Kramer Fellowship at the New Criterion, which we've had for probably a dozen years now. Uh, it's a year-long fellowship for um, uh, some young person. We use most of them have been recent graduates, but it, it, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't you don't have to even have graduated uh, from any institution to apply? And we're just starting one in honor of Peter Collier at Encounter, uh, which I hope we'll be able to start it. Um, this summer, but we'll we'll see about that. He was uh, a wonderful some logistical editor. issues, but he was he was he was, a, he was, yeah, a, he was I've a, had a lot of editors. Yeah, and yeah. He's a wonderful editor. I when I did the World War II book, I just happened to meet him once, and he said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm working on a, a a large book on World War II." And he said, "Would you like me to edit it?" And I said, "Well, it's for basic books." He said, "I don't care who's it for." And I said, "Well, I'd like to pay." No, no, you're not going to pay me. I said, well, Peter, you you edited. Wow. He edited, he came up with the idea and edited Mexifornia, and I and he yes. he yes. a wonderful job on the World War II book. I owed him so much. I really liked him a lot. He was the one Roger that gave yes, me the he idea. Was a, he was to write the dying citizen. He oh, is that right? No, that's terrific. Yeah, no, yeah he was he, a, he was an amazing editor. He 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 edited um, uh, my book, The Long March, which was one of Encounter's first titles. And uh, he, he, there's no question that he, uh, he definitely improved it. Um, you yeah, know, he's, he's very crazy. meticulous editor. So there's a new criterion come out. It comes out four times a year or more. It's, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a month. Monthly. It's, a, it's a monthly, but we go into, we go into a state of estivation in July and August. So it's 10 times a year, monthly, yeah. September. Through how, June. How, how many people? Every, work now, every now and then we, uh we i guess we are um all together we're seven people now yeah wow. seven people same as same as uh, encounter actually yeah we have a you know managing editor and executive editor a couple of it's, business types and uh and a few other associate editors i know i i should tell our listeners i know a little bit about encounter because uh the bradley foundation helps it and i'm on the committee or chair of the committee that oversees that help but Tell us a little bit about Encounter, because it seems like under your directorship, you've expanded your titles, the sales, uh, revenue, everything has grown. Yes. Is that, and you're getting... That's true, yes. Are you the place now because of the cancel culture where people can find a home that are accomplished conservative authors? It seems like you're getting yeah. more solutions. Well, we, 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 are, we are certainly, yeah, we, yeah, we are certainly a place. And it is it is true that Encounter has grown uh, a lot uh, over the last several years, uh, and our list has expanded. 
I mean, I do, there are certain areas that we you know try to emphasize. But you're absolutely right, Victor. We, we are the beneficiaries, I guess, of cancel culture in the sense that some of our most popular books came to us because they were canceled elsewhere. Uh, and this can happen in various ways. For example, I think that the book that is certainly, if it's not the, it's certainly one of our all-time bestsellers is a book by Thomas Sowell called Black Rednecks, White Liberals. That's uh, a great book. We, we published this because it is a great book. Uh, we published this because Yale uh, wouldn't do it or he, they wouldn't do it the way that, that Tom wanted Tom it wanted. to be done. So, um, you know, this sold very well when it first came out. And it's because of the obsession with race these days. It continues to sell. This is, you know, a dozen years later or maybe more continues to sell 10 or 12,000 copies a wow. year, which is extraordinary for a book yeah. that, that, that old. And then we published a book by, he well, McClay is Bill McClay's book. You see that, that is, that's an interesting book too. I mean, that, that was, you know, when I first came to Encounter, I, 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 I was determined to try to challenge the, uh, to use one of the, one of their words, the hegemony of Howard Zinn's anti-American book on American history called uh, People's History of the United States. Now, this book uh, had, you know, held in, you know, a vice, really, the American history in high schools and even in colleges. It sold literally millions of copies. And it was a, basically the leftist Marxist view of the United States, that it was um, it was kind of the 1619 project of la lettre, you know, that the United States was um, you know, exploitative and horrible in all sorts of ways. And uh, it, it's, it's really a terrible book, especially because it, it you know, held such a, a monopoly on uh, uh, the educational institutions. So I've always wanted to, you know, provide an alternative to that. And finally... Uh, a few years ago, Bill McClay agreed to do it, and his book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story, um, is uh, it's really a terrific book. It's been adopted by school districts in, in, in Florida and in Oklahoma and Texas and elsewhere. Um, we haven't quite displaced Howard Zinn yet, but that is the ultimate goal. And we've also, it's become a sort of cottage industry. We've published teachers, you know, guides and young a young person's edition all sorts of things so it's it's really that's one of our areas of emphasis is uh trying to take back uh the education uh, uh you know in this country uh, we have a, in the works a multi-volume book on western civilization co-authored by jim hankins james hankins of harvard and alan gelzo of of Princeton University, and I hope your your listeners will not um, think less of them for their uh, institutional <laughs> affiliations. Uh, they're terrific writers and uh, exhibit you know great independence of mind. And I think that that this book is going to do for you know the Western Civ classes what Bill McClay's book did for I the hope. study of American history. And we have we have other things like that in the works. You know, we, we have a book on economics. We're working on science. We're working on uh, on logic and rhetoric. We've got a bunch of things like that. Uh, and we're, we're, we're very fortunate to be able to partner 
with, um, you know, some uh, what you might call dissident institutions like Hillsdale College and Great Hartman's Academy and so on. These these are places and that that share our passion for taking back the study of Western civilization. So that's you know that's something that's very much on the the front burner of what we're doing. But you know, just to go back to your question about cancel culture, uh, yeah, you, you know, it's it's really quite remarkable um, how the number of of books that, that have fallen in our lap because other more uh, traditional or mainstream uh, or legacy publishers uh, refuse to take them. So Heather McDonald, for example, wrote a book that we published called The War on Cops. Yeah, and, and the, and the, you know, we, we got that because uh, her usual publisher said, oh, well, we can't publish a book defending the police. That would be, you know, uh, so, you know, that was a bestseller. And uh, it's it's the same with you know we, there are many other uh, many other books uh, that we've published that that came to us in the end because other publishers uh, you know we we they, they you know they were too woke we published a book by Ryan Anderson with the what I think is an amusing title it's called When Harry Became Sally about the the transgender uh, stuff this is you know a few years before it became all the rage and um, it was a modest bestseller and then. Somehow, Amazon and other uh, entities that were selling the book uh, took notice of it, and they canceled it. They so, you know, we, we Ryan and I wrote an ad, an article for the Wall Street Journal, and so, and we were, we began selling it through our website, and and in short order, we had sold another fifteen thousand copies of it. So, in a way, I'm I'm, I'm grateful to Amazon for canceling that book. Yeah, it's just, uh, before I, I want to ask a, a question, but before I do, so if our listeners, and we're going to go to a break uh, very soon in a second, but if somebody wants to read your commentary, mm-hmm. you appear in what, you do you write four columns a week for various venues? Well, I write a weekly column, you know, or near weekly every now and then yeah. I have to miss one uh, for, for American greatness. Yeah, and then and I write. And I write a, a weekly column again, you know, every now and then I miss one, but usually for the Epoch Times. Mm-hmm. And I write uh, several times a month, uh, the Spectator, uh, the wor- Spectator yeah. World, the American version of the London yes. uh, paper. So and then I write for the New Criterion every month. And I write for, you know, uh, you know, places like the Wall Street Journal and, and, and other and places. You, so I'm, I'm so, not hard to find. So you're writing almost seven or eight hours every day, aren't you, Rod? Well, no, not necessarily. I uh, I would say I write three or four hours every day. Yeah. Wow. Three or four hours every day. Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a break and we'll be right back with Roger. We're going to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Roger Kimball, editor, publisher of Encounter Books and author of a lot of books that have changed our views of academic life in the right direction, as well as the editor-in-chief publisher of The New Criterion. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes, whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor. Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website 
and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with Roger Kimball. I'd like to ask you now, did you, did you, we'll turn uh, Mm -hmm. the second half of this interview to contemporary events. Did you, my impression when I saw Stanford, uh, the law demonstration against uh, federal justice, Kyle Duncan was, we've seen that a lot at the institutions where the students, especially professional students. These are not undergraduates. These are professional class students in, in the profession, in this case, law school. And what was striking to me mm-hmm. about this, we've seen, and it's happened to me, and I know it's happened to you, and when you give a lecture and people, I was at the University of Oregon once, I was at Washington and Lee, I was at the University of Southern Alabama, where people will disrupt and you'll turn around so I can have a vivid memory of the University of Oregon. And the administration does nothing. There are people there, the dean, yes. provost. But what was interesting about this was three people we understood within administrative responsibilities did nothing. But the diversity, equity, inclusion dean had a pre-written script as if she'd anticipated yes. the disruption. And then she hijacked the dais and turned it around on attack on the speaker. I had never seen that before. And then, yes, no, I thought the, yeah, I never seen that. And then just juxtaposed yesterday, Charlie Kirk went to Davis. There was a violent disruption Mm -hmm. to stop him. And the president or the chancellor of UC Davis, a man named May, he Mm -hmm. issued a video, basically a call to arms for people to go out (laughs) and be, and be disruptive. The president did. And yes, attack yes. and attack Charles Charlie in personal terms. I've never seen that either. It seems like we're reaching a new stage of this campus that the the insurrectionaries are the people in the president's office or the the administrators more so than even the students. Yes. Well, it used to be that the um, the insurrectionists were on the outside wanting to get yes. in, but uh, for for many years now they have been running the asylum and. Uh, you know, it, 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 just to step back for a moment, you, you ask, why is it that we um, give to our institutions of education, especially higher education, all of the perquisites that we do? They're tax exempt. They're often in very beautiful places. They come with lots of prestige. If you're a professor at Stanford, that's a big deal. Um, uh, Why do we do that? 
Well, we do I, it I because we, we. Well, we we do. I think. I mean, I know why we why we used to do it because we yeah. thought. I know too, but I don't know why we do it now. I don't know why we do. <laughs> you know, they were supposed to be. They were supposed to preserve and transmit the highest values of our civilization. We look to these places as repositories of wisdom and as um, crucibles of, of uh, enlightened debate about the most pressing issues. We look to them as repositories of important knowledge. But on all of on each of these cases, you know, they, they, they have, in, if anything, inverted that. So they are now about destroying our civilization. And what just, and I think you're absolutely right, Victor. What happened at Stanford a few days ago has turned the ratchet another, another few it degrees. Has. And the, 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 this lady, this, the, 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 the associate dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or whatever DEI stands for, uh, I mean, it's not, she clearly came prepared for this. I, I'm told that there were meetings. Yeah. A few days before, and she, that she was part of. So this, as the judge put it, Judge Duncan, he said, "This is a setup." I think he's absolutely right. And she got up there and said, "You are a horrible human being. You have caused harm to the to people in this in this room." Of course, it was packed with with uh, with people who were um, you know there only to protest, and they treated this this federal judge abominably. I mean, it's full of obscenities. obscenities. Yeah, Those incredible obscenities. Yeah, 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 and it was really quite extraordinary. And and then she said, oh, of course, we're for free speech, but you are a terrible person who really you had she this bizarre metaphor she used is the juice worth the squeeze, meaning is it really worth it having free speech? Maybe not. Maybe for really horrible people like you, Judge Duncan, there shouldn't be free speech. And then yes. after that, after it was all over the next day, the majority of students at Stanford occupied the, the uh, you know, the administrative offices of the law school in protest. Why? Because the president and dean of the law school had admitted some totally innocuous, non-apologetic apology anemic, to the judge. Anemic. Yes, it, it was, really it, was. There was no, it was, uh, what I couldn't understand about the president, our president, and the law dean, Jenny Martinez, was that they, they issued these, uh, you call them non-apology apologies, but that's what they were. They were, yes. well, the, what happened was entirely antithetical to Stanford's commitment to free speech, and, and we're going to monitor this in the future. And you think, well, that's like telling a criminal who breaks in and steals something out of your store that what he did is antithetical to your store's philosophy of jurisprudence, <laughs> yes, but exactly. you're not going to do anything to him, yes, and there's yes. going to be no yes. deterrent. So, and so they turn yeah. around the next day, and when... Right. Law dean offers her course. They not only they line the corridors, they dress yes. in black, and they try to stare her down and intimidate her for yes. that anemic apology. So yeah, I don't. And then what was weird about it is every every element of the pathology of the university was apparent. Stanford, you know, I, I always go back to that image during the George Floyd uh, days when I was getting out of the parking lot and a car, a BMW convertible, pulled up two guys in cutoffs and flip-flops. The car must have cost $90,000, and they had a BLM yes. sticker. I was reminded of that. Yes, of course. Yes, I love when that. one of the people yelled out, at least I, I, I thought I heard them, you couldn't even get into Stanford. 
Marxist <laughs> revolutionary, so worried about his own sense of uh, elitism that one of the things yeah. he's attacking a, a judge from the South apparently is, well, you couldn't be with us. And I almost wanted to say, yes. well, I'm not sure it's that. I, I, I don't think he would get into Stanford, but I'm not because of his uh, aptitude or qualifications, but it's probably because of his gender and race that he couldn't get in. And so what's really yes. weird is yes, no, the, whole, That's absolutely right. the whole woke movement has appropriated this aristocratic elitist kind of, you know what I mean? This arrogance. It's really strange how that. Absolutely. It's it, no, no, the, 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 the arrogance. It's, it's very weird. The, the combination of arrogance uh, and smug, unearned entitlement is, is extraordinary. And by yeah. the way, you know, I see that the Claremont Institute just published this database of money that has been um, funneled from various uh, corporations to Black Lives Matter and uh, adjacent enterprises like, you know, the NAACP, all that, you know, various black uh, uh, um, enterprises. And the, the numbers are extraordinary. The total number is $82 billion. Dollars, eighty-two billion with a B. Now you know. So uh, you know, Apple gives a hundred million dollars over the course of you know maybe ten years to or has pledged this money. You know, for black this, black that. Um, you know, 3M uh, in in their, I think they're headquartered in Minneapolis, where that uh, uh, where that that chap died of a fentanyl overdose while resisting arrest. Uh, Thirty million dollars, and you know, some of them are is Citibank. It's a billion dollars. So, I know. So, you, so, so what's the moral? I mean, what's the, what? If you were, if you were one of these guys, you say, okay, we burned down Minneapolis. Uh, then what happens? Well, all these corporations funnel money in our direction. Maybe you should keep burning stuff down. The same thing. It just in reminds me of yeah, but it's kind of mayoff. It's mafia protection money, right? It goes back yes, to the 80s. exactly. Remember, eighties Toyota used to give Jesse Jackson all this money. So. All. Operation Push wouldn't demonstrate against it and and uh, hurt yeah, it. No, I, don't, I don't remember that, but I'm sure. That's yeah, but I, true, but I yeah. mean, yeah. I was just yeah. thinking. Stan Stanford has a 37 billion dollar tax re endowment. If they said you're now a political organization and you don't respect the spirit of the Constitution and therefore you're not a nonprofit exempt, and they taxed it, uh, then they would pay. Uh, taxes on the interest they earned on 35 billion that could be i don't know three billion dollars a year and at the tax rate yes of maybe 30 percent they might pay a billion dollar a billion dollars that they would not have to do things like fund these groups and i think everybody has yes. got to the point now where they want these universities to be taxed they're not tax-exempt organizations, and they think that would be salutary, that they wouldn't have this free-floating cash. The Wall Street Journal had a great article, and you and I discussed it, about that euphemism list they had at Stanford and the snitch list where they asked people yes. to rat yes. people out that use words like American and immigrant. But yes. the yes. thing about that was at the end that they had kind of a Parthian shout by the Wall Street Journal and said, and of course, <laughs> there's 16,000 graduates and undergraduates at Stanford, and there's 15,000 15, administrative uh, administrators yes. and administrative yeah. staffers, almost one-to-one. -one. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it, unbelievable. It 
it, I it think is. I think I think they I think at Yale they actually outnumber the administrators outnumber the faculty. But that's not, that's it, something it, that we don't talk about with woke. That woke is it's very similar to the commissariat system in the Soviet Union, where completely completely these ideologues yeah. were hired to spy on people, to spy on the army, to yes. go into university, and yes. they were they were complete mediocrities. And you yeah, get, it's the lives of others. Is that you know yeah, that yeah. that movie? You know, these, these people, they, they think that George Orwell's 1984 was a how-to manual, not a warning. Yeah. And the, when you look at the incompetence of the Soviet army in 1941 and 42, it was partly because all of these ideologue commissariats were telling these three and four, or their equivalent of a three and four-star general, oh, you cannot uh, have a strategic withdrawal. It would be against the people's interest and got thousands yes. of people yes. killed until... A famous order, I think it was in October 1942, where Stalin said, there will be no more commissars. Stalin said that. Uh-huh. Because it was, yeah. yes. And at some point, I think these universities are going to have to say, you know what? We've, we've hired a whole cadre of incompetence and they're mean, vicious people. And they know that otherwise they would not be able to have a successful academic career. They, they don't. It's not that they commit sin. Uh, I mean, that's not the, the sin isn't one of omission that we're wasting money. That could be put elsewhere, but they commit sins. They they make things yes. worse. And yes. uh, well, uh, yeah. what we need is is uh, academic leaders. People like John Silber, who was the, they don't the exist late John Silber. You know, <laughs> you know, or Larry Larry Arn at, at Hillsdale. He's practically unique. Uh, but you know, I, I once had the idea of starting a, a not for profit enterprise that would have the public service of 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 keeping and preserving intact the the testicles of any man who became president of a university until such time that he stepped down. Um, but, you know, you I mean, at Stanford, what's his chat? I mean, I, I, I don't know him, but I mean, I could imagine him saying, you know what, we're going to close the Stanford Law School for two years because they're clearly this somebody has gone terribly wrong here. But of course, he well, wouldn't you know, do that. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have the, the intestinal fortitude to do this. It's, no, uh, and I, I was on uh, Laura Ingram last night and she asked yeah. about it. Yeah, and I think I'm going to go on Fox Business in about an hour or two. But this is what I'm, my point was that this is not new. I went through Stanford Law School, Roger. Do you remember when Trump impeachment hearings and the Stanford law professor out of nowhere was asked to testify, and she started attacking 13 year old Baron Trump? She said, "Yes, oh, I do remember. Uh, that. He he can name him Baron, but he's sure no Baron." Then we had the Stanford mm-hmm. law professor who started weighing in. She just went nuts about uh, the Johnny Depp divorce trial. And she mm-hmm. started attack the Mexican-American lawyer and said she's a pinup girl or something. And then she went after Johnny Depp and said, I hope he dies and I hope his body is devoured by rats. This is a Stanford law professor. <laughs> yes. Another one. And then we had the Bankman Freed parents that both yes. of them, we yes. were told by none other than the Washington, the New York Times told us that, and I remember that article came out about a month ago. It said, well, Mr. Bankman, uh, Professor Bankman and Professor Freed were a little bit more involved in the FTX <laughs> uh, real estate transactions yeah. and gifting. And she ran a dark money, clo- uh, mine the gap, close the gap that, that right. She kind of par- partnered with Silicon Valley to transfer monies to PACs for them on the left. And then he was right. a consultant to Elizabeth Warren. But And then 
when they had a bail $250 million, I, I was asking somebody at Stanford, I said, you know, when I walk to my apartment, I hear these helicopters. So oh, that's a paparazzi, SBM or whatever. <laughs> he's on campus about a mile away and he's there because the former Stanford law dean, Larry Kramer, helped bail him out. Yeah, of course, it wasn't two hundred and fifty million dollars. No, it wasn't a house or something. Yeah, it should have been twenty five million, ten percent. If any of us listening get get a DUI or something, it's ten percent of the bail. They did not put up twenty five million. Not at all. No. And then and then I was thinking about Stanford. You know, Stanford, for all of its arrogance with Berkeley, were kind of the engines behind the 20th century California miracle. Stanford burst Silicon Valley, built Berkeley mm-hmm. Hill. They had yep. that's where everybody here in this state learned engineering. They divide the, the engineers of the California water system, the reservoir system, the uh, architects. They all were trained at the UC and Stanford campuses. Yeah, to take that legacy, and they they birthed Silicon Valley. And I'm thinking, my God, in the last few years, there's been Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos uh, yes, Ponzi yes. scheme. She had Stanford community people from Hoover and Stanford on her board. And then we had Sam Bankman-Free. Then we yeah. had the euphem- euphemism scandal. Then you remember the admission scandal where the sailing coach was trying to sell admissions <laughs> into Stanford? <laughs> yes. And then yes. as we speak, and then we had the medical school and the faculty senate go after Jay Bhattacharya and Scott Atlas yes. for the crime for the crime of, of telling the truth <laughs> telling the truth that <laughs> vaccinations were not an absolute protection from either being infected or being infectious and, right. and, mas- and, and masks masking with work yes yes yeah yes. and and there may have been a leak from the Wuhan lab all of that was right. and they censored them and they went after yeah. them and then yeah, I was no, thinking, they, they made they made their lives miserable. And now, of course, on every one of those counts, they've been proven right. They're yeah, completely that was, right. That, so what, what's, the the stan- what's the uh, restitution? What's the restitution? None. The Stanford president weighed in against Scott. And I'm thinking now really we have am. the Stanford yeah. Daily. We have the Stanford Daily almost daily. <laughs> daily is daily calling for the resignation of the president because they claim that 30 years ago he, he joint authored a paper that uh, Dr. Devin. I don't have any idea whether that's yes. a valid no, I've, 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 I've read about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah but yeah. so, I mean, almost, what gets me about that is that these students, and yesterday, Roger, they were in the faculty center, a number of them signed a letter, I think a hundred of them. One of my Hoover colleagues signed it, demanding that Rupert Murdoch be removed from the board of overseers of the Hoover Institution. No, I'm really, thinking, I didn't know. Who people are yeah, so yeah. self-righteous. And then you look at all of these scandals and, you know, it, it's just mind boggling that that wonderful, great university would be so directionless to turn you know, over I, I, all of these resources to these maniacs that are destroying yes. its name. It's and, incredible. Uh, you know, I, our friend Peter Thiel had a great idea, which was that every university that had an endowment over X, so you say what X is you know, let's say 10 billion or whatever, uh, it has to pay a certain percentage of, of their endowment every year to some uh, charity, you know? So Harvard is very concerned about the, the plight of blacks in America. So why don't they spend a 10% of their, was it $47 billion, whatever whatever their endowment is, something on that order, and give it to Howard University or something. No, I don't they think they'd be too that. keen about that. No. 
but if they're social. Uh, that's a good idea. They're socialists. Spread the wealth. Yeah, yes. they should, they should, but you they know, help I, 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 yes, exactly. I uh, well, I don't really like poor people. At least not not in real life. Only in the abstract. It's. I, I was going to write a book called "Retaking the University." I even wrote a kind of introductory essay about it and so on. And then I realized that they couldn't be retaken. They, you know, they're too rich. They're unaccountable. They, no, that's they, a, that's they, a question. That's the, that, you, you, that's, they're a, just, that's they're, a, they're I, I can't answer. I, that bothers me so much because on the one hand, the University of Austin and Ralston yes. and all these alternatives are great. Yes. But then on the other side of me says, you know, why do we give over all of these institutions that, that weren't theirs. I, I can remember my mother going to get a bachelor's degree with her sister, my aunt, in 1943 uh, from Stanford and a law degree in 46. Mm-hmm. And my hope, my grandfather mortgaged this little ranch. Just, I mean, Stanford was not like this. And yes. I thought, why do, why do they get to take over these institutions and they have this iron control? Then they force us to start something anew when what we should do is fight them and say, they, that doesn't belong to you. I'm sorry. It's not yeah. yours. Well, we're, we're not willing to, to employ we're the same tactic, you know, unfortunately. And may, maybe we will learn to do that. But, you know, people talk about Antonio Gramsci's idea that for the, for the Marxist revolution to succeed, we needed a long march through the institution. Yes. Well, that, that happened. That happened in it the did. 60s and the 70s. But what, what people um, may not be fully cognizant of is that that long march left behind it all of these seeds that have sprouted and are now blossoming with their toxic fruit and uh, no, the, no. The, these the, and they, they are destroying these institutions from within how you recover from that is um it's a, that's a deep question. I wish I had the answer to it. Well, I don't, but I can tell you that that institutions like Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Princeton, I mean, all of them have, you know, are, 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 when you say that they're woke, that means that they have turned their backs on their fundamental mission. They no longer do what they advertise themselves as doing. Oh, they don't. They, they're and they're and, and we need, yeah, we need to call attention to that. I don't think we use, I think we should stop using the word woke. I think they're just absolute Marxist, cultural Marxist. Yes, well, yeah, wokeism really is the... It's, it's the euphemism. The, yes, it's the current allotrope for cultural Marxism. And, yeah, it's, what, and, you know, and it's, you know, it's kind of like what Herbert Marcuse was talking about in Eros and Civilization, yeah. this weird compact of, you know, strange sexuality and, um, uh, you know, the, the wretched of the earth, Franz Fanon's phrase. Uh, yeah. It's 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 very toxic. And uh, mm-hmm. the enemy is for the, for them are people like uh, you and me. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been called up by the Stanford Faculty Senate for the crime of going on Tucker Carlson uh, yes. show and saying that if there was um, if there was irregularities in the 2020 election, my guess was they were committed or done in March and April when a concerted effort by democratically funded law firms, cherry pick justices and mm-hmm. bureaucrats and overturn the intent of the legislatures on balloting laws yes. and made them, yeah. you know, you can no ID, no right. deadline, dead, deadline, 10 late days after voted harvesting doesn't have to match right. the registers. All Absolutely. Of those yes. Okay. We're going to take a break, Roger, and we'll be right back. 
uh, with our final segment. And I thought Roger will turn to something that you know a lot about because you published Julie Kelly's book on the Never Trumpers. And you and I have a lot of former friends, I guess, uh, (laughs) that that are in that despise us and what's left of the Republican Party, I suppose. But we'll be right back uh, after this word from our sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. back with Roger Kemble. What do you what you think there's going to be a defining moment, Roger, when we we have this I'm not discounting Nikki Haley or Pump, you know, mm-hmm. I want to be fair, Pence and Pompeo, but if it turns out yeah. that it's DeSantis and Trump, how mm-hmm. how does the uh the bulwark, the dispatch, these people we've all known, the David Trumps, Bill Crystals, uh Charles <laughs> Sykes, Jonah, how do they how do they pivot? Do they want to come back into the party or do they, they, if DeSantis starts to rise, do they transfer their animus to him and say that he embodies Trumpism and somehow? But my point is, if Trump becomes inert, I'm not saying I want that to happen or that it will happen, but if it does happen, then what mm-hmm. do they do? They, they've lost yeah. the reason to be, right? They're not never Trumpers anymore because they're never... Trump's existence, maybe, but not never Trump yeah. candidate. What do they do? Well, right. Yeah. Well, right before uh, our, we started our conversation today, I saw that um, <clears throat> uh, Charlie Cook, who is a uh, not part of the Trump fan club at National Review, uh, has a rather tart essay about Bill Crystal, who's who is the uh, former conservative um who's one of the leaders, perhaps the leader of the the Never Trump movement, uh, who um, called on National Review to um, repudiate what Ron DeSantis had said about Ukraine. Uh, The the territory. I read that very carefully, by the way, when they attacked him for saying we should not be involved in a territorial dispute. They were saying, well, he's he's reduced the greatest land war in Europe, World War II started over various territorial disputes, like taking Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. uh, the Su- Sudetenland. Yes. But my point is that yes. if, you, if you read the whole statement, he said, we should not escalate by giving them troops on the ground, Americans boots on the ground, yes. or F-16. He did not say pulling away 
the defensive yes. ability to save lives in Ukraine. He never said that. So I didn't understand why. Yeah, no, so absolutely. Uh, yes. Well, I, you know, I did, you know, th- this is somewhat, uh, somewhat to one side of, of, of uh, what you were asking. But, you know, I think that I would not necessarily uh, trust Bill Crystal to give us a dispassionate and accurate precy of what Ron DeSantis said. I think what you just said is, it is accurate. Uh, but you see, I think what Bill was saying is that Ron DeSantis was not as eager and gung-ho for a war with Russia as he appear, appears to be. But you know, so you're, you're asking what, what it is, it's very strange. What, what they will do, I think, I think uh, the reason I brought up that exchange between Bill Crystal and Charlie Cook is I think we will, a lot of them uh, will say, uh, Ron DeSantis is, is too Trumpist. So we already know that Liz Cheney said that, that, um, yeah. you know, uh, at the conclusion of the uh, January 6th Entertainment Committee, uh, that some, several things that Ron DeSantis said were too Trumpist for her. She couldn't support him. She well, might, now we get, you know, now we get into interesting. That's a good point, Roger. Now we get into the interesting territory because if you look at the alternatives to Trump, and let's just take, for example, DeSantis, and you look mm-hmm. about his attitude toward taxes, fewer taxes, mm-hmm. less, gov- less government, right. self-sufficiency in energy, right. tough, deterrent right. policies toward crime, race-blind or you know, content of your character, not color of your skin, approaches to race. He, right. he, that mm-hmm. is exactly what the David Frums, the George Will, the Bid Crystals have been t- yelling at us for 40 years. And so the question is, yes. that's not going to work, but it's, it opens up the real analysis. I think that their means of existence is now so heavily leveraged by useful idiot left wing money that they don't have free will. Because if they, if they, if a well, crystal came out and said tomorrow, okay, Charles Syke, Bill Crystal said the following. Okay, I've looked at DeSantis. I'm, uh, you know, I was a, I, I don't want to build a wall, but I was pretty much for legal only immigration, and I, I like the idea of getting self sufficiency. I like he's going to increase the defense budget. I like the idea it's going to be mm-hmm. race racially blind. I have reservations about late term abortions. All the stuff they've been yelling, Mona mm-hmm. and all those people. If they said that and they wrote that, then what would Pierre Amador and all these donors do that fund the bulwark or the dispatch and all? I mean, what would their source of income become then? They would be orphans, would they? That's 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 a very naughty question, Victor. And I think we all know what the answer is. Uh, you know, I I I I always found it mysterious. Um, you know, during the the Trump years, I'd say, you know, now. Uh, Bill, what what is it that you don't like that, that Donald Trump is doing? He appointed all these conservative judges of the stamp of Samuel, uh, you know, Scalia of uh, of Scalia Antonin Scalia. He he made the country energy independent. He cut taxes. He built up the military. He um, you know uh, he's a big support the none bigger supporter of Israel. He bought brought peace to the Middle East. He secured our border in the south. What, which of these things do you not like? And, uh, you know, I, I felt that about all of these guys. You know, 
what is it here that you don't like that he's doing? You, you don't like his taste in neckties. You don't like it? his taste in fast food. You, you, oh, I don't know what it is, actually. You don't like his character. One, one, one uh, prominent uh, never Trumper uh, he wrote a piece. He said, you know, he's quoting Heraclitus. He says, character is destiny. And, and Donald Trump has a bad character. Well, I, I don't know quite what that means. You know, it's 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 you know he's he's divorced. He had affairs. You know, how does that distinguish him from from you know many well, many well, many probably most about, other presidents? Yeah, yeah. I, ha- I have a, a friend that said that to me. So just as a joke, and I think I mentioned it. I said, you know, I said this to her. Well, the reason I can't vote for Trump, and I did vote for Trump, so I was being facetious. She didn't know that was I don't mm-hmm. like presidents that pull down their pants and hand their phalluses and say, does this foreign leader have anything? <laughs> I don't like yes. foreign leaders who have their own daughters arrange to have a liais- sexual liaison while they're in the White House. I do not yes. like my presidents inserting, I don't know, foreign objects in the private parts of young interns. I don't like that. So right. right. That's why I can't vote for Donald Trump. And she said, "You mean he did all that, didn't he?" And I said, "I just, <laughs> I just described LBJ, FDR, yes. and Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton, yes." And I um, never heard yeah. anybody say, "I can't vote for FDR because he's having an affair with Lucy Mercer yeah. right when his wife and his own daughter is helping him escape the gaze of Eleanor, or LBJ yes. to be impeached because he had a, a group of people." That he grabbed his penis and said, "Does Ho Chi Minh have anything like this?" Or he, he was constipated, and he, he didn't. If he didn't like a staffer, he said, yes. "Come on here and take notes while he was defecating on the toilet." That's yes, that's that's all documented. I think it was Robert yes. Carroll's book. Yes, so my point is, Carroll's book. I, yes. Yeah, I don't know where the standard is. It fluid, or what was it about? Yeah, uh, you know, See, you, I don't. I've I don't, these, under, I don't I've know what it was people. about you, Trump. What was it? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to it. But I mean, they, they it's I think it's some deep visceral slash aesthetic objection. Um, but I don't quite it's not to what he does, because what he did, they should applaud. But, you know, but I'm sure that, you know, every Republican candidate since at least Ronald Reagan, maybe before, has been described as literally Hitler, literally Hitler. Right. So remember what happened to Mitt Romney? He was a horrible man because he kept yes. his dog on the the oh, roof of his car. Yes. He, was, he, was he had an elevator. Mean. Remember, he had an elevator. Yeah, and he was he was mean to a kid in high school. Remember that? I mean, it's yes, just, he, uh, so, so DeSantis will he will get if, if he's the candidate, he will get the full treatment. What what, what the never Trumpers will a, do? I remember know. digital digital brown shirt. Uh, the old, yes. I think John yeah. John Glenn even said about, or no, who was it? Said oh, John Glenn, the astronaut, said that it's the old Nazi thing about. <laughs> they all call him a Nazi. I wrote an yeah. article about uh, the not ad Hitlerium about that. All of yes, them. no, it's it's extraordinary. But it's, What's yeah, but but what I don't understand is that. There's another theory that's not so cynical about money is that maybe a lot of these people as they age, Roger, wanted to get back where they always wanted to be. In other words, that the you talk about the march to the long institutions, the people mm-hmm. who books, who hire people for foundations, who grants, uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, corporate money, all of that is on the left. The arts, it's all controlled by the left. And maybe they feel that they'll be favorably appreciated. They'll be, I'll have a new group of much more powerful and influential friends. I don't know what it is, but maybe they're well, uh, wanted. They maybe always wanted to be here. And now they're getting back to where they feel it's much more comfortable. They're tired of, of being ostracized by the cultural left. Maybe, maybe, you know, I, I just don't, I mean, I, you know, I'd like to think that they have some intellectual integrity someplace. I just don't understand what the principles are. I mean, at least some of them, some of them are pr pretty clever, you know, but, uh, but I just don't, I mean, it's, they, they can't be 100% venal or maybe they can't, <laughs> I don't know, but it is true that they're supported almost exclusively. There are some exceptions, but, but largely, let's say by left-wing, uh, left-wing money. Uh, you know, whether it's Pierre Ahmadjar, who you who you mentioned, or or uh, other sources of left wing money, it's it's quite it's quite interesting that they're they're really being used as tools by all of these entities uh, that you know a few years ago they would have been uh, you know fighting vociferously against, but now they're part they're part and parcel of the very I, thing. I don't I don't quite understand. I remember that. I wrote for years for Commentary Magazine, and yeah. one of the editors was uh, Gabe Schoenfeld. Remember him? I oh, think you vividly. Encounter published a book, a, a good book, actually, on anti-Semitism by, by Gabe before I was the publisher. I would have published that book. It was very good. I thought, he wrote, I he thought is, you published a book on intelligence by him, no? He wrote one good book on uh, intelligence, I thought. Uh, no, well, if he did, it wasn't published by Encounter, okay. at least I don't remember that one. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, I never, I did. Was, yeah. uh, he, I worked with him and I found him affable, competent. Yeah. I didn't know him yeah. very well. But then, yeah. you know, in 2019, he wrote like 2,000 words sophistry or something in the service of evil. And, and yes. I was, I was speaking yes. to Hudson that particular day on the need to stand firm with Israel. And uh -huh. he, the day that he wrote out said that I was an anti-Semite and I, I, I had I played the same role as a Hitler apologist. I could it was unbelievable. Read. I remember that piece. Yeah. I he, mean, I wrote a really <clears throat> reply, but I, I mean, what makes, what makes these people completely flip out and start, I, I did. And then national review, the, one of the last podcast, no, it was with Ricochet. And mm -hmm. you know, they, these are people that I like. And one of them was Mona Sharon, who I had a lot of respect. She, they just went nuts. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they I, did. And you probably had that same experience of knowing people your whole life that suddenly don't talk to you or they, they, they just freak out of their eyes. Yes. You know, I've, I've met Lynn Cheney. I've even had a dinner with her. And I never, I always thought that while she was a neocon that, maybe n did not learn the full lesson. I mean, I was for the Iraq war, but the idea that sure. you're sure going to go in, go in an optional military engagement in the Middle East today, it's not going to work. No. The cost-benefit analysis is not worth it unless it's, you know, an existential interest of the United States. But my point is that I, I can't believe that when she would be, that same person would be so obsessed with Donald Trump that she would not allow contrary witnesses or there would not, she would be opposed to a wide variety of Republicans serving with her on that committee, or she would not allow uh, 
the release of those videos that might not confirm her narrative. What happened to it? I just don't understand. It's, it. it's, it's, I don't, I don't quite understand it either. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a very strange thing. It's maybe in the fullness of time, we will all will be revealed, but I at the it, moment, I, it still I, remains very shadowy. I think, uh, I think it'll be revealed in this election because this will be the first election, Roger, where Donald Trump, uh, there's a possibility. I mean, it was clear that he was a nominee and he won. I understood that they mm -hmm. hated him. And then the re-election, that was, that was step one because they bought into good old Joe Biden from Scranton, the working man's moderate, and everybody else within it, yes. with a bit of sense said this is a non-compost, yes. empty vessel whose only yes. job is to carry a hard left uh, agenda yes. across the finish line and disguise it That's with right. a thin veneer of senility. And yeah. what he's done has been, <laughs> what he's done has been absolutely a disaster. So it has they, been they, a disaster. They revealed that, that when they voted for him. But now there's going to be an array of Republican candidates mm -hmm. um, and to various degrees, and and one of them maybe, if you just take for example Nikki Haley, she yes. seems right out of central casting for yes. the former Never Trumpers worldview, isn't she? Sounds uh, to me like she is. Yes, she probably. I'm not sure where she exactly where she is on things. Let's say like Ukraine, but on many other things. Well, yes. she's pretty. Yeah. I think on Ukraine, she's almost right there. Uh, she, but, uh huh. Uh huh. So my point is that it'll be very interesting to see. Let me just finish, Roger. We have just two or three minutes. Okay. What, what do you? How's this going to work out with DeSantis and Trump? And when I mean how, is there a way that one person wins and there's not a breakaway? Or uh, if Donald Trump should not get the the nomination will he gracefully agree to accept the nominee or he forms a third party or will it get very vicious uh i don't i don't i mean hillary even hillary and obama um <laughs> were friends again but i i don't know yes. i don't well at least it's, it's, at least partners in crime yeah yeah uh, i don't you know i don't know the answer to that uh, victor it's it's um uh i i would be content with with either I, I believe that you know as harold wilson said a week is a long time in politics a lot could change uh, but at the moment i think it's going to be either donald trump or 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 uh, ron DeSantis. i i think if i had somebody said well who do you really think is was most likely to be the nominee at the moment again a lot could change but at the moment i think the it's most likely that Donald Trump will be. But you think again, that, stand that might not be. Are you worried about the standard exegesis that says, if you look at the polls, Donald Trump mm -hmm. win, can win the nomination, but DeSantis mm -hmm. would, win, would, would have won the general election? I'm, is that well, a I, Yes, of course, I hear that. I, yeah, I, I hear that. I, I'm, I'm not sure I think there's, I, I think he would, I think that Donald Trump is likely to do well in the general election, too. What I'm not so confident about is that the problems that um, plagued the 2020 election, and they were uh, yeah. very wide, I'm not sure that the Republican Party has effectively addressed those problems. 
Um, you know, Trump says he's going to be doing ballot harvesting and so on and so on. Um, you know, I think that Ron DeSantis would in many ways be the, the safer candidate. Um, and because the he, he, he doesn't. He doesn't bring up the, the would, nutty yeah. billionaire. Yeah, he doesn't have he doesn't have all the baggage. You know, they they would go yeah. nuts over him as they would Trump, but I don't think they'd go quite as nuts. But yeah. it's it's a juvenile impulse on my part. I, I recognize, but partly because Trump would drive them nuts, I sort of uh, harbor the hope that maybe he would be the candidate. But I, I um, hope you know I, I hope would be perfectly I happy hope. if it turns out to be Ron DeSantis too. Yeah, I hope that they they can agree, at least agree on the person who loses endorses the winner. And that didn't happen, as you remember. Um, yes. We, we were told that all of these candidates were going to endorse. Ted Cruz did, you know, but a lot of them didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, a lot of them didn't. Yeah, I don't know. Car I don't know Carly Fiorina, you know, did, I, she, he, she didn't. Yes. And yes. It, the, the, I'll just it seemed to me that each candidate has something that people wanted to know. In the case of Ron DeSantis, that he was a he had a he had a masterful technocratic ability to get things done. He uh, but they mm -hmm. wanted to know if he was a mega guy and could rile up the base. So when he sent people in to Martha's Vineyard, illegal aliens, or he took on Disney, or he yes. took on Critical's race theory, yeah, really. universe. He sh he showed, I think, everybody that he can he can have that base support, and now yes. Trump. Yes, I agree. Everybody everybody knew about Trump's got that phenomenal ability to round the crowd. But what I hear when I travel, where people come up, is that they don't want you know that Glenn Youngkin sounds like a Chinese name, mm -hmm. or Mitch Mitch McConnell's Asian wife, <laughs> or Ron DeSanctimonious, or we got to right, redo right. the 2020 election, do it over again. So that the question with him is right. wonderful four years of governance, some sloppy appointments and Almoroso, you know, maybe a Scaramucci. But mm -hmm. but but can Donald Trump curb the gratuitous um, stuff? Not that you or I are bothered by it, because that's just I don't. But that mystical four to six percent swing yes. vote that we that we need, given that we haven't won fifty one yes. percent of the national vote since nineteen eighty eight and lost six yes. out of the last yeah. seven popular votes. Maybe it's seven out of the last yes. eight popular votes. Yeah. So we, we well, really that's a, very, gotta, that's a very good question. Very good and question. And I, don't I don't know, know the answer that, to it. Every time it seems to me that every time Trump makes a gratuitous statement or he's got that type of publicity, he goes down. And every mm -hmm. time he gives a very thoughtful video, goes out on on a policy, or he says mm -hmm. something in a speech uh, that's well thought out, he, it goes up. Yeah. yeah. Well, I so thought his speech at CPAC was was quite brilliant, actually. And it did two things. One, his, his pledge to uh, dismantle the deep state, I think, uh, yeah. resonated with a lot of people who would uh, be uh, likely to vote for a Republican. Um, his talk of retribution, too, by the way. But then also, I was <laughs> struck by—I I was struck by his. The, the, he was kind of a bubbler of new ideas, you know. Oh, about okay, the what do we out have in the frontier? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I thought, you know, oh, I don't have no idea whether it would work, but what a great—it's a new idea. Why don't we try that? Well, you know, or how about having parents 
uh, appoint principals. Oh, you can't do that. The teachers unions have to do that or the oh, yeah. educational experts. Oh, so I like how's that, that work? I like, I like that. I mean, those, I like the, that. There's a lot of good ideas, you know, or a lot of fresh ideas. Anyway, he's an old man, yeah. but he's, yeah. he's a, a, the source of some fresh ideas. So I, I think that that was pretty good. Uh, it's really, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. It's early days. I, it's kind of it's kind of ironic that the Democrats' problem is that they have no candidates or qualified or any good, and the Republicans is they have too many. Yes, that yeah. we're running because there, yeah, there's well, a lot those, of really those, good. Those candidates. two are very attractive to me, Ron DeSantis and yeah, me too. And Trump, me too. But, uh, me too. And I, I like. Uh, um, I, I think everybody's. We'll see. It, we'll see what the polls where the uh, it seems to me that Donald Trump is raising a lot of money in a grassroots fashion. I get all these emails yes. every day. Everybody does. And then Ron DeSantis is yes. lining up a lot of the donor class. And yes, he I has. Think, and, He's done that very effectively. Yeah. And, yeah. and the question will be, well, can DeSantis have a grassroots fundraising that matches Trump and can Trump get the donors lined up to match DeSantis because money is in and then put it in the context that in the last election it was three and a half times uh, Trump was outraised in other words the Democrats had at their disposal three and a yes. half times more money so yeah it's amazing have, isn't it amazing yeah they're gonna they're amazing. gonna have to raise money and they're gonna have to watch the polls well, Roger, we're out of time, and I really appreciate this. And I hope everybody got oh, great. Uh, go to New Criterion and to Roger's columns in American Greatness, Spectator, Epic Times, um, and follow him each week. As long as well as they're almost all of them are on Real Clear Politics as well. And uh, any final comments, Roger? No, no. Let's uh, let's uh, we have to all pray for the republic. It's, uh, yes. it's undergoing one of its stressful moments, but but uh, but uh, d despair is a sin. So we don't want to be we don't want to be uh, optimistic. That's Dr. Pangloss's uh, fault. But we do want to be cheerful. <laughs> yes. Instead of cry, root for the beloved country. Yes. There you go. <laughs> OK, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. This is Victor Hansen and uh, our guest, Roger Kimball and Sammy Wink signing out.